Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. We come this morning in our short series on the book of Ruth. We come to chapter 2 as we study this beautiful account of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. We're going to read the text as we go along this morning under our three main points. But if you were here last week, you remember that Naomi and her husband and two sons had left the promised land of Israel in disobedience to God and went to live in the land of Moab. What they did was understandable from a worldly point of view because Bethlehem, their hometown, was experiencing a famine. But instead of trusting God to provide and to care for them, they traveled to where we might say the grass was greener. As we followed them last week, we saw that Naomi's husband died in Moab, and Naomi still chose to stay there. She found Moabite wives for her two sons, which was against the law of God. But after 10 years, both of those sons also died, and Naomi eventually decided to return to Israel. We saw last week that one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, pledged to go with her back to Israel. Ruth had clearly come to trust in Yahweh, the true God, the God of Israel, and Ruth was devoted to caring for her mother-in-law, who was now destitute. And we saw the broken-hearted cry of Naomi as the two women finally arrived back in her hometown of Bethlehem at the end of chapter 1, where we left off last week. At chapter 1, verse 20, the whole town is stirred at their arrival and can't believe that it is Naomi after all these years. And Naomi says this, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. And that Hebrew word means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Clearly, Naomi is struggling with a deep sense of abandonment by God and bitterness at his apparent lack of care for her. But this morning in chapter 2, we begin to see how the Lord's love begins to become evident to her. And the theme of our study today is that Naomi is actually surrounded by the steadfast love of God. Yes, the Lord brings chastening, He brings discipline, but always for His people, that discipline is out of His fatherly love for us, even when we have no idea of how that can be true in light of our circumstances. And as we look at the unfolding of God's purposes for Naomi we can receive great encouragement to believe in God's steadfast love for us in Christ, who love, whose love for us lifts us to heaven and holds us fast, no matter how great the darkness of our lives might be. In fact, the key verse of chapter 2 is verse 20, where Naomi says to Ruth, may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord the Lord whose kindness, and that's the 
Hebrew word hesed, covenant love, steadfast faithfulness. The Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That's really the theme verse. And so we want to see the steadfast love of God revealed in three ways in chapter 2. The first is God's providence in verses 1 to 3. And secondly, in God's people in verses 4 to 16. And then in God's promise of a redeemer. First, verses 17 and following. God's providence, God's people, God's promise of a redeemer. And then we'll see two points of application. So first, God's providence. The Lord's sovereign control of the circumstances of his people's lives. And let us give heed as we hear God's word. We'll begin with verses 1 to 4. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Gleaning was a practice established by Old Testament law in Leviticus chapter 19, a law which showed the heart of God for the poor and the sojourner, the foreigner in the land. And that law made allowance for those in need to pick up the remnants of the harvest that would be left when it was harvested, especially at the edges of a farm field. The wisdom of this law is seen in the fact that the person in need did not simply receive a handout, so to speak, but in gleaning, he or she was able to maintain a degree of dignity in working for their provision. Of course, the law also called for sacrifice on the part of the farmer. Remember, this was a subsistence culture, a very poor culture. In other words, every bit of harvest was important. Nothing would have been wasted. Think, think of very small farm fields. It's funny, the other week, I heard from someone who recently moved to the Lancaster County area and who had been raised in New Hampshire, that when he came here, he thought, wow, the farm fields here are so big. And not long before that, I had been talking to someone else who had recently moved here from the Midwest, and he was telling me what it was like to move here. He said, John, the farms are just so small here. I thought, it all depends on your perspective. But in that day, in that ancient world, for a farmer to leave some of the harvest was a true sacrifice, to not get every grain of barley or wheat. And that brings us to Ruth and the amazing picture we have here of God's providence. Providence is a word that speaks of God's control of even the smallest circumstances of our lives. Ruth says to Naomi that she, she plans to go out and glean in a field. And she adds the thought, in whose sight I shall find favor. What does she mean by that phrase? In other words, not everyone would have been happy about someone gleaning in their field. There might have even been a danger of being assaulted, we'll see, if a person tried to do so. So Ruth knows that the farmer would have to be okay with her gleaning. And remember, Ruth is a sojourner, a foreigner in Bethlehem. Everyone in town would have known about Ruth by this point. Gossip travels very fast in a a small town. But notice what it says in verse 3. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging 
to Boaz. That, that phrase, she happened, is translated by one Old Testament scholar in this way, as chance chanced. Interesting. But of course, the biblical writer, the biblical narr- narrator knows that there is no such thing as chance, that everything is ordered wisely by God's guiding hand. But to the eye of the way that life is experienced by all of us, it just seemed to happen that way, as it happened. At this point, Ruth doesn't even know that she has ended up in the field of Boaz. She's never even heard of Boaz. It reminds us of the story of Joseph in Genesis 37, when Joseph's brothers throw him into a pit and talk about killing him. But at just the right moment, they look up and see a caravan of Ishmaelites approaching on the road. And so that provides a perfect opportunity for Judah, one of Joseph's brothers, to suggest an alternative plan of not killing Joseph, but selling him into slavery instead. And to them, it might look as if it was by an accident or by chance or happenstance. But no, we know that wasn't a mere coincidence. Uh, We know that from the stirring words of Genesis 50, verse 20, where years later, Joseph, speaking to his brothers about that dark day in his life, declares, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And as with Joseph, so with Ruth, God was guiding her steps into the field of Boaz. The deep and steadfast love of God for her and for Naomi was secretly guiding them, even though their actions were very ordinary. And this is the same providence that the Bible tells us is at work in all of our lives. And for those who have trusted Jesus Christ, Scripture says that God's hand of providence is always for our good, as mysterious and untraceable as His purposes may seem. You might want to go back and read the Heidelberg questions we said in our Confession of Faith. It describes it so beautifully. God is for us in Christ, or we could say in Romans eight twenty-eight, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we see, first of all, God's love in his providence, but then we see God's love in his people and through his people. God's love is shown through the love and care of his people serving others in love. And let us again read from our text, beginning at verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? 
But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. How did God provide for Naomi in her great loss? He primarily used two of God's people, Ruth and Boaz. Think about Ruth. We, be, we, we began already to see this last week when we understood that in chapter 1, Ruth committed herself to the true God and in doing so, also committed herself to stick with Naomi, even though that decision would have been seen by her family and friends in Moab as utterly foolish. At the time, Ruth's beautiful statement of com- commitment to Naomi was met by silence on Naomi's part. There's no record of what Naomi said, if she said anything. Naomi was still consumed by her bitterness, not an easy person to love, I'm sure. But here in chapter 2, we begin to see how deeply Ruth was committed to her mother-in-law's well-being and how great a blessing was Ruth's action on Naomi's behalf. Think of this, the fruit of faith in Ruth's life. Look at the wonderful character we see shining from Ruth. She clearly is very hardworking. Gleaning, I'm certain, was no easy task. Working all day, harvesting barley grain by hand, bending over, kneeling down, being out there from early morning to probably close to when the sun set, hour upon hour. When my children were in high school, one of them applied to a local farm and inquired about a job there, and that child got a full description of what working in the farm field would be like and how early that child had to be there. And that particular child opted for another job after hearing all about that. And Ruth does all this work, we see, with a good attitude. She doesn't complain. She is respectful to Boaz and everyone. She's appreciative. She's humble. She's thankful. And Boaz is clearly impressed with her character, her decision-making, Uh, Verses 11 and 12 tell us a lot when Boaz says to Ruth, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. He's already heard reports of Ruth's character, how she left her father and mother and came to Israel. And he says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a, a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. And then there's this phrase at the end of verse 12, under whose wings... You have come to take refuge. What a beautiful description of trust in the Lord. Boaz knows that Ruth has sacrificed much. And throughout the day, he sees 
clearly her character shining through. And this verse, verse 12, is telling us that these, these character traits are the fruit of Ruth's faith, her faith in the God of Israel. And the book of James, much later in history, tells us that faith without works is dead. But here we see that Ruth's faith is very much alive. It's a living faith in God, and it's bearing genuine fruit. She is a godly woman. And what a blessing for Naomi to have such a daughter-in-law doing whatever it takes to provide for them in their great need. But we also see the example of Boaz. From the very first picture the narrator gives us of Boaz in verse 4, we see that he is a man of faith in God as well. Even the way he arrives at the field when he's introduced in verse 4, and he greets his workers with the words, the Lord be with you. And clearly this is not just a trite saying to Boaz or a meaningless formality. He means every word, and his heart is set on the Lord and his goodness, and it overflows in his language and in his manner. And with Ruth, how does he treat her? He gives her great respect and kindness. Even there was a great difference in terms of their social class, so to speak. He helps her in every way he can, yet without removing her responsibility and her self-dignity. And he invites her to stay in his field, and he assures her of her safety. And at lunchtime, he even invites her to eat with the harvesters, and he gives her enough roasted grain that they had for lunch so that she was fully satisfied. That would have been no small thing for someone who had probably been very hungry for weeks or months on end. And not only that, we realize eventually we'll see that Ruth is given enough for lunch so that she is able to take some of the roasted grain back to Naomi for her to eat. And in verse 16, we read that Boaz even tells his men to pull out some of the grain stalks out of the already harvested sheaves and to leave them for Ruth to glean, no doubt in a discreet manner so that it it wasn't too, too obvious. And so we see from all of this that both Boaz and Ruth are wonderful examples of God's people in action, serving others in love. And that should be a challenge for us as well, to seek to live beneath our means so that we have, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.28, so that we have something to give to those who are in need. But the main point we see here is God's steadfast love is revealed through His people, through His providence, through His people, and thirdly, through His promise of a Redeemer. The mention of a redeemer or a kinsman redeemer, we might translate it, anticipates the rest of the story, and it points to Jesus Christ, the ultimate redeemer. And so give heed as we read, starting at verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. That's about three-fifths of a bushel or about 20-plus liters of grain. That's a lot of grain that she harvested. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave what her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, "Where did you glean today? When where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you." So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, "The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, 
may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to by my young men until they have finished all the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, leaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. God's covenant love to Naomi and Ruth is revealed in a redeemer. We will see further as the story unfolds how the law provided for a relative to act as a redeemer in cases like Naomi's. With her husband and her sons having died, and obviously Boaz is going to act as that redeemer at great cost to himself. And we know that Boaz points to the great redeemer, Jesus Christ. And verse 20 is really the key verse where it says, speaking of Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And there's that word, covenant love. The kindness of the Lord has not forsaken the living or the dead. Isn't it amazing? At the end of chapter 1, Naomi's last words were, the Lord has brought calamity upon me. And now she testifies, the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. What a transition. And this is from the steadfast love of God. What does it mean from her saying it that way, the living and the dead? The living is speaking, of course, of herself and Ruth, but the dead is speaking about her dead husband and sons. And she is saying that there is a sense that if God provides a redeemer, then her husband's name and his posterity will be preserved, something that was very important of the ancient cultures of that time. It will be the redeemer's costly responsibility to support Naomi and raise up a son through Ruth to be the heir of Naomi's dead husband. All of that was involved in this concept of a redeemer, of redemption, taking a hopeless broken situation of death and loss and despair and turning it around to one of hope and joy and provision and fulfillment. Boaz would do that in an earthly way for Naomi and her husband. Jesus Christ brings about redemption in, of course, a much deeper sense. Through his cross and through his resurrection, Jesus brings those who trust in him out of spiritual and eternal death and gives them an inheritance in heaven. He takes our names that are stained with sin and he gives us his very name, his righteousness, his very life so that scripture can even say that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, Romans eight seventeen. Naomi, you see, is starting to have hope again. She is starting to trust again in the Lord's faithful love. The Lord, through his providence, through his people, through his promise of a a redeemer, is beginning to lift her out of this darkness of despair. And what a beautiful picture that gives us of the gospel. And so what are the two applications we can make? The first is this question, have you come to place your trust in Jesus, the only true redeemer and savior of our souls? 
that verse 12 that describes Ruth's conversion out of the darkness of her pagan idolatry with the words, the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, is a very powerful description of conversion. Ruth has taken refuge under God's wings, and her only hope is now in the Lord, her hope for eternity and for this present life. And think of Ruth. She only had a very dim picture of who the Redeemer is, this Redeemer who was prophesied in Israel, this Messiah, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. And by the way, wonder of wonders, we'll see as the book goes on, that it would turn out that Ruth herself would be in the ancestry of that Savior who was to come. But even with that dim knowledge of the Messiah, Ruth exercised saving faith. She repented from her idolatry, turned to the true God, and showed the fruit of faith in her life. Against all the natural inclinations of her upbringing, against all the darkness of her present experience and loss, Ruth put her faith in the Lord and in His promises. And so each of us have to ask ourselves, have I trusted the Lord, if I put myself under his wings, so to speak, his salvation in Christ. And Ruth's culture in Moab was very much opposed to this. It was, it was the darkness of pagan idolatry. Our culture is now very different from the Christian viewpoint as well, but still deeply opposed to the true God. You might uh, if you're a young person especially, you might face the mocking questions, how can you say that There is only one way to God, which Christianity states. Or how can you believe that Jesus was any more than a mere man? Or how can you believe that outdated notion that you and I need to be saved, to be saved from our sin and and from death and hell, the penalty of sin? God called Ruth to find refuge in him when every other voice in her life was speaking lies. What about you? Will you find refuge in Jesus Christ? But the second point of application is this. Because of God's steadfast love in Christ, you and I who have trusted in him have reason for the strongest hope when things are dark. We have reason of the strongest hope. This theme of God's love is throughout the Bible, his covenant love. It's, it's, of course, supremely revealed in Jesus Christ, but in the book of Psalms, for example, the steadfast love of God, that word is used 123 times. That's almost once for every psalm. Give you some examples of psalms where it refers to God's steadfast love. Just a few. Psalm 51.1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So there, the love of God is the ground of our forgiveness. Or Psalm 33, 5, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And that's telling us the love of God fills and pervades our lives every day. Or Psalm 44, 26, Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. It's the basis for our prayers. 
Psalm 63, 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. It's the theme of our praising of God. Or Psalm 69, 13, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. The steadfast love of, the God, of God is the truth that enables us to wait on God's timing in our lives, as Ruth and Naomi had to wait on that. Or Psalm 89.1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. It's the theme of our song eternally. In heaven we'll be singing of the steadfast love of God. Or one more, Psalm 90, verse 14, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. It's the source of the deep joy in the believer's life that satisfies our souls. As we think about this theme, we see from Scripture that a believer may experience overwhelming suffering. But for Naomi, the steadfast love of the Lord was there all along. She had just lost sight of it. And you may go through a time when you have no felt sense of the Lord's love. But then, as always, we are called to believe God's love for us in Christ by faith on the sure and certain testimony of God's Word. You may have no emotion of joy in God. That's not unusual for a Christian to go through that in profound suffering. But in the darkness, you stand on God's truth by faith. That is the calling of God on our lives. The love of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ shows us the very heart of God. It is the defining and sustaining reality of our lives in Jesus Christ as we live. We must set the steadfast love of the Lord before our eyes always. We must make it a focus of our praying. We must let it be our freedom from fear, and we must let it be our hope in the face of all temptation to despair. Many of you know the story of the life of Alexander Hamilton, one of our nation's founding fathers. But maybe you don't know about the life of his wife, Eliza. I didn't know about Eliza's life until I read a biography of Hamilton a few years ago. Eliza Schuyler was raised in the Hudson Valley of New York State in a strong Bible-believing Dutch Reformed church. She met Alexander, the young and brilliant aide to General Washington during the Revolutionary War. Throughout their marriage, she remained serious-minded and devoted to the biblical convictions of her youth. She was an active Christian and an active member of a Presbyterian church in Manhattan where they lived. You probably know that Alexander was killed in a duel with Aaron Burr in 1804. That was an event that shocked the, the nation at the time. Alexander was 49 years old when he was killed. Eliza was 47, and she would live the next 50 years of her life as a widow until she was 97 when she died. When Alexander was killed, she immediately faced overwhelming hardships. Alexander had left her unwisely with a crushing, massive debt. She still had to raise the youngest five of their eight children. She had recently lost her oldest son who had been killed at age 18 in a duel that was strangely similar to his father's. 
Within three years, both her parents and her sister also died. Her eldest daughter had a mental breakdown and would need constant care for the rest of her life. Her husband's will gave Eliza the care of his blind, impoverished cousin, which she faithfully carried out for years. What is it that could sustain someone in the face of such incredible loss and hardship? Ron Chernow, in his biography of Hamilton, asked the question this way, how did Eliza soldier on after these dreadful events that came thick and fast upon her? And Chernow quotes from a letter where she answers this question by praying for, to quote her in this letter, the mercies of the divine being in whose dispensations, or we might say providences, all Christians should trust and rest. Doesn't that sound a lot like the book of Ruth? And then Cherno goes on to describe really remarkably how Eliza went on to consecrate much of her extended widowhood to serving widows and orphans and poor children. Naomi, Ruth, Eliza, all of us need to know and to live in the steadfast love of God that surrounds us in Jesus Christ and upholds us through his cross and resurrection and his daily presence in our lives. His love is what gives us comfort and hope no matter how great the darkness of our circumstances might be. Let us pray. Our Father, we are struck with the depth of your love. We know we will never be able to fully plumb how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for us. We thank you for that love. We stand in that love. We pray you would strengthen our trust in you, our God, that we might hold to the truth of your word no matter what may come this year or at any time in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.